Hello and welcome to episode 12 of The Secret Layer. My name is Tyler Lyle, and we made it. This month's theme is The Cabin, The Village, and The Café. The French writer Marcel Proust says, Poets claim that we recapture for a moment the self that we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. But these are most hazardous pilgrimages which end as often as not in disappointment as in success. It is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years. I arrived at the cabin in the wilderness of East Atlanta by accident. I was 23. I'd spent that birthday at a bus stop in Venice, Italy, alone all day after a hundred-year flood trying to get back to Paris. Later that month, on Christmas Eve, I moved home from Paris to my parents' rural Georgia home. And there I spent three long months trapped in that in-between space against the grand plans of what you think your life will be and your suffocating childhood bedroom with your autographed baseball and your PlayStation and no job and no plans. I left that transitional season of life when it was time, like I've left all others as an adult, fighting like hell with a few good songs. After the three months, it was April of 2009, I was offered an unfurnished basement apartment in the Ormwood Park neighborhood of Atlanta. It was offered out of politeness. No one was really supposed to live there, but I didn't get the hint. I jumped at a chance to move out of my parents' house and back into the city that I loved. Only it leaked, and there were cockroaches, too. That season, I made a record called Notes from the Parade with Paul Reeves and Micah Dalton. Around that time, my parents came for a visit on a Sunday afternoon. After lunch, we drove around the neighborhood. This was peak housing crisis, and for me, peak cockroach crisis. And we saw a beautiful old house for sale very close to where I was living at the time. It had been built in the 1920s, had a big yard that was full of old trees. The former owner, a middle-aged lady, died of breast cancer a few years prior, and it had been empty for two years. My parents put a low-ball offer in. It was accepted. My sister and I agreed to rent out a couple rooms to friends to cover the mortgage. And at the end of June, the week of the closing... I was still living in my unfinished basement when I pulled the sheets back on my bed and there was a cockroach in between the sheets in my bed in the mildew and moldy and leaky unfinished basement. And I got in my car and I drove the half a mile to the new house. I blew up my air mattress and I slept in the empty master bedroom of the cabin, the first person to sleep there in years. After that, I refused to go back to the basement apartment. A couple days later, my parents closed on the house, and I spent that summer fixing and painting and furnishing the cabin. My dear friend from the Netherlands came and stayed with me to help. It soon became a hub for Atlanta songwriters. Besides Daniel, Micah Dalton, Molly Pardon, Stephen Cashwell, Kevin Albertini, Josh Fletcher, Joel Seibel, Aaron Hodges, Tovarina Johnson, Thomas Lockwood, Jordan Ann Poe, Aaron Scorch, the list goes on and on. Songwriter nights at the cabin was potluck. People would bring beer and fried chicken. We would stay up until 4 a.m. playing songs. 
It was perfect. I wrote many songs in that living room. The heart of pine planks on the floor and on the walls and on the ceilings were like a great hull of a ship, except for the original glass window in the front that spanned across the living room. In its heyday, that house was home to a lot of creative types. Duncan was a metal worker who made crazy inventions and fed pandas at the zoo. Brett was a graphic designer getting over a divorce at the time. My sister Cassie was a printmaker and a sculptor. Sarah, who became my roommate again in L.A., was a bartender. There were a lot of songwriters, though. Micah and Molly and Danny. Always a revolving crew of interesting people. The cabin was where I practiced with my band and where I spent late nights philosophizing and where I shut myself away after a breakup and wrote The Golden Age and The Silver Girl. That was 23 to 25, or roughly 2009 to 2011. Glorious, lost days where you go meet a friend and come back a week later. I could play a hotel lobby gig a couple times a month and make $600, which was enough to buy my food and my booze and cover my rent and buy old folk records from Tom in East Atlanta. It was a magical time. It was a necessary time. That relationship ended in spring of 2011. I spent approximately two months grieving alone and listening to Van Morrison's Astral Weeks and Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, and I recorded my own version of Loss. After watching Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris about L'Age d'Or, the Golden Age, I called the collection of songs The Golden Age and the Silver Girl. The day after I finished that record, I boarded a plane and flew to Los Angeles. When humans gave up their nomadic ways and started to gather in communities, they slowly discovered interest in different things. We have different curiosities. When early technologies like seed cultivation and the plow allowed one person to produce enough food for 10 people, those people who are no longer working in the field began to be able to focus their energy into specialization. Some people ended up making pots, some figured out how to make steel, some built better buildings, some were skilled at trade with other communities. Later, some would create new fields in science and art, meteorology and botany and genetics and philosophy and literature. This is why we now have iPhones and the Sistine Chapel and jazz. It's specialization. In our modern world, we have specialized individuals, but we also have specialized communities. Those who want to learn to trade go to Wall Street. Those who want to write a hit song go to Nashville or L.A. Those who want to practice law regionally go to a regional law school. And those who want to sit on the Supreme Court one day go to the Ivy Leagues to learn from the brightest in the field. It's not that you can't do what you want where you are. The Internet exists. Austin Kleon in his creative theory book, Steal Like an Artist, is right in one sense that the digital world has given us a certain kind of access to other specialized people, a kind of digital community. But in another very real sense, there's a fire that is kindled and created when specialized people live together in a community. If you're a jazz musician, you can absolutely listen to jazz records on your computer alone. And you should. But it's a different thing entirely to hear the greats at a hole-in-the-wall jazz venue in New York City and buy a round of drinks after the set and hear their stories and feel the spark 
It sticks to your lungs. It becomes a spirit inside of you. It becomes human. It becomes real. It gives you peers and mentors to live in community with other creatives who are specialized in the same thing that you are. And eventually, down the road, it gives you a place at the table to assist the new kid in town. But then again, nothing lasts forever. Everything that is solid melts into air. That's Karl Marx. I want to talk about the village. Economically, Greenwich Village was stagnant by the late 1950s. Then the neighborhood was a hodgepodge of low-income tenant housing peopled by working-class, second- and third-generation Italians. And nationally, as the car replaced the elevator as the dominant means of transportation, New York City, for the first time, was starting to lose its population to the suburbs. In 1950, New York City was only 100,000 people shy of 8 million. It took it another 50 years to cross that threshold in 2000. I blame this on Robert Moses and the American automobile industry. But remember, like we talked about in uh, The Rise and Fall of Creative New York, art thrives in the fringes. During this time, Greenwich Village, because of its forgotten character and cheap rents, became a hub for painters, for writers and musicians, those who thrived in the fringes. A folk singer at the time, David Amram, writes that the village in the late 50s and early 60s was an informal community of malcontents, dreamers, and fun lovers. The village was a place of constant stimulation and inspiration, with low rents, no expectations of becoming a superstar. Most of us just pursued the dreams of becoming some kind of artist. We had the space to enjoy life and appreciate one another's company and celebrate each other's work. New York Times book critic Anatole Broyard recalled it this way, The village, like New York City itself, had an immense beckoning sweetness. It was like Paris in the 1920s with the difference that it was our city. We weren't strangers there, but familiars. The village was charming and shabby and intimate and accessible, almost like a street fair. We lived in the bars and on the benches of Washington Square. We shared the adventure of trying to be, starting to be, writers or painters. The folk scene in New York in the early 60s was centered around Washington Square Park. It was the second wave of folk in New York City. The first wave came with the introduction of recording studios when the musicians from indigenous traditions from the South and Midwest were sought out and brought to New York City in the 20s and 30s to cut records. Pete Seeger, one of Woody Guthrie's bandmates in The Weavers, was a cornerstone of the scene which was anchored by Moses Ash's Folkway Records, home to artists like Lead Belly, Phil Oakes, Lightning Hopkins, and Odetta. Near Folkway's offices on Sunday afternoons, NYU students and folk singers would congregate around the fountain at the center of Washington Square Park and sing old folk songs made famous by this first wave of recording artists 30 years earlier. This second wave of folk music in the U.S. would probably be less well-known if it were not for the seeds that sprung out of it and then consumed it. When Dylan arrived in New York in 1961, the first thing that he did was visit Woody Guthrie, who was then dying in a hospital in New Jersey. At the hospital, he met folk legend Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who was staying at the Hotel Earl next to Washington Square, and he convinced Dylan to move in. Hemingway had stayed there, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, 
And when Dylan moved in in 1961, Peter Lafarge lived across the hall. Greenwich Village had folk clubs like The Bitter End, The Gaslight, Café Wa, Gertie's Folk City, all of which Dylan and Dave Van Ronk and Phil Oakes and Joan Baez played. But it also had coffee shops, which in those days held poetry readings. The Folkies and the Beats lived apart from each other, but alongside of each other with some cross-pollination. Today, 160 Bleecker Street is a CVS. But in 1962, it was singer Chip Monk's, that's his real name, uh, it was Chip Monk's apartment. Uh, And this was where Dylan had his first real lyrical breakthrough. That's where he wrote A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall on Chip's IBM Selectric typewriter. Dylan's songs began getting more existential and farther from his folk roots. It was in the next year that Dylan met poet Allen Ginsberg and played the Newport Folk Festival for the first time. Two years later on that same stage, Dylan went electric and the folk community went insane. It's all over now, baby blue. It ain't me, babe. I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. Dylan wanted out of the folk scene that made him. Shortly after his performance at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival, the folk community in Greenwich Village was sort of swallowed up like Laurel Canyon in the 70s, like the Transcendentalist Movement in New England in the late 1800s, like the Prague Spring in the 60s, like the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s. These intellectual and creative communities rise for a moment, but hardly ever make it more than 10 years. I've been following the Ghost Ship Warehouse fire. A couple weeks ago, 36 people were killed in the deadliest fire in California since 1906. Authorities were already investigating this big warehouse building for illegal interior construction. This is how artists survive in urban areas now. They pack in. The first artist colony in the U.S. was in the Hudson Valley. Places like Marfa, Texas or Big Sur in California serve as out-of-the-way places that artists can go to live in community. But like a gang of plumbers or a gaggle of used car salesmen, they need a broader community to exist within. Artists need cities. Artists also need to escape cities from time to time. Like everybody dreams of their hideaway in Woodstock or Martha's Vineyard or farm in Connecticut. Um, But as a temporary and not a permanent break from the metropolis. Artists and thinkers need connection and communication and communion with others. Monet painted water lilies, but he didn't paint for the sake of the water lilies. He painted for an audience. He painted for a commercial audience, but he also painted for the audience of his peers, um, for his story within their story. These days, the ratio of income to housing cost is insurmountably high for many But in legendary communities, housing was notoriously cheap, and so was alcohol, and so was space to create. We have specific challenges to creative community that are new today, uh, challenges highlighted by the Oakland Warehouse fire. Uh, But in fairness, there have always been challenges to creative communities. The Café. So World War I left all of Europe shaken. The Germans who had lost the war were reeling. 
But a new philosophy was beginning to sprout in the works of Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger. We spoke earlier this year about Heidegger and phenomenology, uh, but the group that I want to talk about uh, were in Paris at the time. Um, Then it was a nexus of post-war intellectual and creative activity. A lot of it was American and British. Uh, People like Henry Miller, Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, Uh, William Faulkner, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Cole Porter, John Steinbeck, Aaron Copeland, George Gershwin, Isidore Duncan, Ezra Pound. They were all there drinking and thinking and trying to solve the problems of the day and trying to make worthwhile art. They may be the most obvious group for uh, inspired creative communities within the 20th century. And you should absolutely read Hemingway's Immovable Feast. Um, But I want to talk about the French existentialists who were... um, there at the same time, uh, in different cafes, drinking absinthe and apricot cocktails, uncovering a new way of thinking about being. And they needed the Germans, right? So in the same way that it took the Beatles for the world to understand American rock and roll music, so it took the French existentialists to understand and unpack the German phenomenologists. While the French technically won World War I, it left 2 million French dead or missing and 4 million wounded. And the whole country was weary of fighting. So they kept their head down and got down to the business of living. In 1928, Simone de Beauvoir, Simone Veil, and Maurice Marleau-Ponty competed in the entrance exam for the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. Simone de Beauvoir was an aggressive and agitated child of the Parisian middle class. She grew up Catholic but renounced God at 14. Simone Veil was called the Martian by her mentor who was interested in world religions from a very young age. She learned Sanskrit after reading the Bhagavad Gita as a teenager. Maurice Morleau-Ponty was a good Catholic who was amiable and friendly. He'd lost his father from a young age, um, but in his circle of friends, he was famous for being the only existentialist who would ask you to dance. Simone de Beauvoir and Maurice Marleau-Ponty were good friends in school. Um, They might have been the most obvious choice to become a couple, uh, but de Beauvoir decided that she couldn't be with him because uh, he didn't have enough violence in him. Uh, De Beauvoir and Vey were never friends. Though Vey had the highest marks on the exam, de Beauvoir was second that year and Marleau-Ponty was third. They were all classmates with Jean-Paul Sartre, who was devouring the German philosophers Nietzsche, Husserl, and Heidegger at the time, and of course, Kierkegaard. He was working on his own philosophical methodology rooted in Husserl's phenomenology. The first fruits of this philosophy, of which Sartre's name would be the most prominent, is summed up by Sarah Bakewell in her excellent book at the Existentialist Café. Existentialists are concerned themselves with individual, concrete human existence. They consider human existence different from the other kinds of beings that other things have. Other entities are what they are, but as a human, I am whatever I choose to make of myself at every moment. I am free, and therefore I am responsible for everything that I do, a dizzying fact which causes an anxiety inseparable from human existence itself. 
An existentialist provides no easy rules for dealing with human ambiguity, but instead concentrates on describing lived experience as it presents itself. And by describing experience well, he or she hopes to understand this existence and awaken us to ways of living more authentic lives. That's Bakewell's summation of what existentialism is. So this philosophy began in the cafe, and it would kind of stay in the left bank intelligentsia and would go on to inform the next generation of libertine thinkers. These three stories, for me, are all about community, right? So the, the story is about community, the embers that glow individually, but when you put the embers next to each other, they make a fire. I wanted to tell the story linking my community at the cabin in the wilderness of East Atlanta during the late aughts with Greenwich Village in the early 1960s and the left bank intellectuals in the late 20s and early 30s. But I think the more interesting story about community, the deep story, isn't actually about community at all. I think the deep story is about time, where you go after the spark. So 10 years after meeting uh, Sartre and Marlo Ponti are prisoners of war. Husserl's manuscripts are being hidden from the Nazis. Simone de Beauvoir is in Paris teaching high school, reading Hegel for comfort in a Nazi-controlled city. Vey is actively fighting in the Spanish militia, and her writings become increasingly mystical. Ten years after that, Being and Nothingness is the de facto philosophical text for the 20th century, which Sartre began as a prisoner of war. Sartre and Marleau-Ponty had a public falling out about politics. Marleau-Ponty is now the foremost child psychologist in France. Simone de Beauvoir publishes one of the most important feminist texts in history, The Second Sex. And Simone Weil is dead. She died of tuberculosis working as a spy for the French resistance. Sartre finished Being and Nothingness with a promise for a second book of existentialist ethics, but it would not come. His philosophy changed in the post-war. Everyone's did. The existentialism which purports freedom can also be isolationist, introspective, shut away from a world of people. After the war, a collectivist energy pushed him towards complex politics. A story that I remember my professor telling me in college uh, was about uh, a story his professor told him. She was in Paris in the 1960s, um, and she was at a political action meeting with other um, sort of progressively-minded young people, and Jean-Paul Sartre was in attendance at this meeting. Speaker after speaker stood up and gave words of solidarity or condemnation to the unjust system or words of encouragement for each other to stay strong in the fight. And at the end, Sartre stood up, told the group of individuals that even if their vision of a perfect uh, political system came to pass, they still would not be happier than they were in this moment. He said, this is the moment right now. This feeling was the point. And then he left. As for Greenwich Village, 10 years out, the folk scene in New York was gone. Dylan had broken his neck in a motorcycle crash and after three years out of public life, had made a country album, releasing Nashville Skyline and skipping Woodstock in 1969. 
That same year, Pete Seeger led half a million protesters in song against the Vietnam War. Phil Oakes was arrested at the Democratic National Convention in 1968 in Chicago. Allen Ginsberg wrote the Wichita Vortex Sutra in 68 as an anti-war protest, and Joan Baez was also in Nashville making a country rock record. Ten years after that, Dylan was a born-again Christian, writing gospel albums. Seeger was an environmental activist concerned with pollution in the Hudson River Valley in New York. And Phil Oakes was dead after hanging himself following a stint in a mental institution. Allen Ginsberg had released Plutonian Ode that year against the nuclear armament. Joan Baez's songwriting began focusing on the LGBTQ community. And finally, The Cabin. So I want to go back to Proust's quote that we started with in the beginning. Poets claim that we recapture for a moment the self that we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. But these are most hazardous pilgrimages, which end as often as not in disappointment as in success. It is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years. The Japanese call the autumn flowering mono no aware, which means the tender sadness that you feel when you see beauty that is passing. For me, even trying to return back to that living room when I was 24 drinking Miller High Life with Molly and Joel and Danny and Josh and Stefan, I can't reboot back to who I was. I recently updated my computer and had to go back into the time machine to revert back because my computer couldn't handle the update. But I have no time machine to go back to myself. None of us have that ability. It's a bittersweet. Jordan Ann and Aaron are now married and have a daughter. Molly was featured in last month's American Songwriter magazine, and her next album is being produced by Ryan Adams. Josh recently moved back to Atlanta from Nashville and works for the state of Georgia. Micah just bought a house in the neighborhood and is expecting baby number one. Thomas got engaged last month in Central Park. Danny just built a house in the mountains with his wife and new daughter. And me, I've been a long time gone. The deep story is that time passes. The river that starts out probably too fast and too wild and too chaotic first loves as world wars. The first songs are true in and of themselves, unreflective and preconscious, like bird songs. But eventually the river slows in time. Now Bob Dylan has a Nobel Prize. The moment of illumination, however, is long gone. Gone the way that the village is gone. The left bank thinkers are long gone. Bleecker Street is for tourists, as is Les Dumagots. The rose-tinted glasses of the golden age get a little rosier as each year passes and the memory erodes. The river starts to crawl as it carves itself deeper and deeper into the earth in preparation for reincarnation into other forms, into newer communities, into newer inspirations. The current slows. The jagged edges are rounded and the truth of time hits us in the old rooms that we visit where we used to live. Before I close, I want to go back to the old rooms of the cabin. Now inhabited by tenants who I don't know. The fence has been taken down. The retaining wall is in dire need of repair. I can go back on the Google Street View time machine 
I can see it as it was seven years ago. I can see my roommate's cars in the driveway. I have some news. My wife, Anna, and I are buying the cabin in the wilderness of East Atlanta. We close next week. The deep story is that time changes. I left seven years ago, lost and defeated, and I will return with my wife to Atlanta one day, not yet, but soon, not to relive, uh, but to start fresh in a different chapter with different possibilities. It isn't in the cabin, but within ourselves that we should seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years, as Proust would say. But there is comfort in familiar faces, familiar branches, familiar rooms, even if the neighborhood has changed and discussions now are about mortgage rates and preschools instead of David Lynch and Flannery O'Connor and local indie bands. Thank you for your immense support this year. I had no idea what the secret layer would be. I just knew that it would be something. And it was. I'm going to continue this for one more year, if you guys will stick with me. I'm just starting to feel like I'm getting the hang of it. Hold tight with me a little longer. Lots of exciting things are coming in the next couple months. January starts a new release schedule, and I'm going to change a few things up. And I'll let you know about it when I do. But I hope you have a happy holiday season. These couple weeks are the special moments when we get to most clearly see the proof of time passing. I hope you all can look back at the beautiful sadness of your bygone years and smile. See you back here on January 2nd. We have a lot to cover. Thank you.